I hope you have your Bibles. I want to encourage you to find your place in Acts chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to pick up where I left off uh, in May. <laughs> we started preaching through the wonderful book of Acts, and then Corona hit, and the Lord said, pulled up the brakes, and uh, then we started going through uh, some cultural things that I just felt like the Lord wanted me to address, and been doing that for several weeks now. And uh, the Lord just gave me liberty. He gave me liberty to go back into the book of Acts. And um, when we stopped, we stopped at Ananias and Sapphira. Can I get a witness right there? So that's where we're going to pick up uh, this, uh, this morning. And let me just start by saying this. There's no such thing as a perfect church. If, if you are our guest today or you're watching online, regardless of where you're watching, anywhere in the world, uh, this is not a perfect church. We're not perfect people. Uh, we have a lot of saved and redeemed folks. Want everybody to be saved and redeemed. And uh, seeing a lot of people come to know Christ as Savior. But if you're looking for a perfect church, this is not it. I heard a story this week, or read a story this week. Uh, I read it before, but I was reminded of it. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, who was known as the Prince of Preachers. I mean, a great theologian, great preacher. Uh, could expound the Word of God in amazing fashion. But he had a really sharp tongue. Uh, buzzard, I'm just, he was quick-witted. And he was one of those preachers, just you better be careful when you ask him a question because you just don't know what you're going to get in return. Well, after one service, and, Char and Spurgeon wanted to see a lot of people come to Christ. And so he'd go out in the highways and the hedges. And so he, he, had, a, you know, he had one of these churches that lost people just come to get saved. And uh, it, it was just a, well, he had a whole bunch of different folks from different classes. Well, anyways, this couple came up after service one day and they looked at Charles and they said, we're leaving the church said, we're going to find us a perfect church. We're out of here. And Charles Spurgeon, I mean, just like that, turned and says, well, do me a favor. When you find it, don't join it because you'll mess it up. <laughs> There's no such thing as a perfect church. It just doesn't exist. And here, I think God gives us a wonderful example of a narrative, a true story that happened in Scripture. One of a challenge in the church to show that the church is not perfect. You've got these two individuals that lie. And they lie over money in regards to the church. In fact, they lie over an offering that they're supposed to give to the church. And in order to completely understand the context, you've got to start up in chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, in order to grasp what's happening in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So just for the sake of clarity and continuity, let me call your attention to Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse number 32, and let's read the text in its entirety, then I'm going to come back and just kind of share with you a little bit from the text, and then I want to give you five lessons we can learn from these liars, and hope and pray that as we move forward in this 21st century, that we will not lie to God either. But look at what the scripture says, beginning in verse number 32. The Bible says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. Let me stop right there and say this parenthetically. I didn't say this in a previous service, but I preached on it already. He's not talking about this for a form of, of socialism or uh, a communism. He's not, that's not what the Scripture is talking about. This is a needs-based community. We see this in our church today. If there's a need in the community, the church tries to meet that need. I think it's a shame that we live in a culture today where we depend upon the federal government to meet needs that the church needs to be meeting. And by the way, let me say this. The church was meeting those needs before the federal government ever did. 
And so in regards to the food pantry and closed closets and those type of ministries, that's what we're seeing here in the text. We're seeing those opportunities were being met by the congregation, not, not depending upon the government to meet those needs, but depending on God to meet those needs through a body of believers. It's a quite a fascinating study, but let me I digress. Let me go to verse 33. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. That's the only way it's going to work is great grace. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of land or houses sold them and, bought the pro- and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. So, I mean, they just weren't giving away stuff. It was if there was a need, they would go build a need. Somebody needed a ramp, they'd go build a ramp. I mean, somebody needed some clothes, they'd go take them clothes. Somebody needed to, uh, to get the oil changed in the camel, they'd go over and change the oil in the camel. I mean, whatever they needed. Verse number 36. Now, you'll see that word Joseph. Uh, that, that's the word Joseph. It's Joseph is the pronunciation for that. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas, by the apostles, which is translated the son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having sold it, a piece of property, he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife, also being aware of it, and brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter asked and said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own, in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied in, but to God. So if my title sounded a little harsh, I got it right out of Scripture. Lessons from the liars. Uh, he said, you lied. You lied to God. Verse 5. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those that heard these things, and the young man and the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered and said, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much money. She said, Yes, for so much money. I sold it. We sold it for that. Then Peter said to her, Why is it? that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. You know, this is one of those sermons where say, preacher ain't going to get a lot of amens on this one. This is a tough one. And by the way, this is not some uh, uh, parable. This is a true story that happened. And uh, you might think, well, man, this is so harsh. I mean, goodness gracious, they die. We want to well, we take care of that. We wanna, I want to share with you why that's so. But in order to do so, we've got to understand the context. Now, think about this just for a minute. God has done great things and God has added to the church so much so that in verse number 32, the Bible talks about the multitude. 
Some scholars say that it would not be unusual or an exaggeration to say that there were some 20,000 people that have gotten saved and joined the church. Now remember, they don't have the completed Word of God. It's still being worked out. It hadn't been processed yet. God's still using the writers to experience these things so they can write them down. So God uses the apostles in a mighty way during this intermediate set season, if you would, while the Word of God's being prepared. Because remember, the Bible says we have a more sure word of prophecy. That's what Peter said. And Peter lived this. And so Peter, when he said we have a more sure word of prophecy, he's referring to the Word of God. But as the Word of God is being prepared, the apostles have these great signs and these great wonders that's taking place here. And it's just absolutely uh, amazing what God's doing. As a matter of fact, look at chapter 4 and verse number 31. The Bible says, And when they prayed, the place they were assembled together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Now I want you to look at chapter number 5 and verse number 17. This is what I call the bookends to this story. The Bible says, then the high priest, excuse me, I don't mean verse 17, I mean verse 12. The Bible says, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. So on one end, you've got boldness. On the other hand, you've got signs and wonders. God is doing these great things. And right in the middle here, You've got this story where 20,000 people have all things in common. They've got one heart, one soul. Nobody needs anything. They're meeting each other's needs. And then all of a sudden, here comes a man on the scene by the name of Joseph. Joseph is such an encourager that the apostles look at him and say, We don't want to call you Joseph. You've just got a new nickname. Your nickname is Barnabas. And Barnabas means the son of encouragement. Now, Barnabas was such an encouragement, we see throughout the course of the Scripture, he shows up in in passages of Scripture, like 1 Corinthians 9, 6. Barnabas is the one that supported Paul when nobody else would. Barnabas was the one that actually took Paul when he got saved and brought him to the apostles, and they were scared to death of Paul because his name was Saul at that time. Uh, before he got saved, and he was persecuting the church. And can you imagine when Barnabas, the son of encouragement, walked in the room and said, Hey, guys, I, I got, I got uh, you know, Saul. Well, he just got saved, and he's out back. They're like, He ain't coming in here. No, he ain't coming in here. He's lying. He's tricking you. Your encouragement has gone too far, Barnabas. You always look at the glass half full. You're always wanting to be an encouragement. He's going to come in and kill us. Well, through the course of the Holy Spirit of God, he was able to convince the apostles that Saul really was converted. His name was Paul, and there were some things that happened in his life that changed him radically. He was not the same man he was before he got saved. Can I get a witness right there? I'm not the same man I was before I got saved. Thank God for salvation. And so he changed. Barnabas had an experience like that in his life. Look at what the Bible says in verse 36. The Bible says, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated the son of encouragement. Look at this. A Levite. What does that mean? It means that he had some, Barnabas had some responsibilities before he got saved in the temple. And these responsibilities were serious. Let me give you a few examples. 
He was the choir director. He had to lead the singing. That was, his, that was his responsibility. Wouldn't it make sense that the, 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 the son of encouragement would lead the singing? Man, he led the singing in church. Not only that, he also led in the construction process. If something needed to be built, if they needed a new playground out there for the kids, there would be Barnabas. He'd be right out there uh, making sure and overseeing that construction progress. Uh, he also was called upon to serve in any area of the church. It didn't matter what. He had to serve. He, re, he reminds me, Barnabas reminds me a lot of Pastor Mark around here. Uh, Pastor Mark's got that gift of encouragement. I came in this morning and I, I, I was coming up the driveway. And, and uh, uh, let me just share this parenthetically if I could. My 15-year-old has worked at Dunkin' Donuts, which is a blessing for the whole family. It really is. Has been saving up his money. He's 15. He's about to turn 16 so he could purchase a car. Well, he... He's finally found it. He, he's been looking at this one specific make and model, and he finally found one. He pulled the trigger this weekend, and he bought it. You, you know what he got, Said He got a 2002 Crown Victoria. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting a thumbs up by a lot of people. I mean, all around the room, people are just like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I felt like a fat cat. I really did. I mean, I'm on my way to church thinking, man, I feel like somebody. It's things that, well, we pulled in the driveway, and and uh, by the time uh, uh, I saw it, it was too late. I mean, he, he, had, he was already driving me. There was a piece of trash uh, in the driveway. Now, normally, I'd have just stopped and got out and went and picked it up. By, but he, he had a mission. Let's get his daddy to church. And so we, we pulled in there. And uh, so I, I come inside, and I saw Mark. I said, Mark, I said, uh, there's a piece of trash out in the driveway. Uh, some, somebody threw some chips or something out there, bag. Uh, needs to be picked up before everybody gets here. And Mark said this. He said, I'll go take care of it myself. He, he just is a servant. He just served. That's what Barnabas would have done. Barnabas would have said, just let me go get it. I'll go take care of that. And so Barnabas was a servant. Not only was he a servant there in that, in that uh, capacity, but he also taught the Word of God. He had to teach the Old Testament. He had to understand it. He had to clearly understand what the Old Testament was talking about in relationship to the covenants and that the Messiah was coming. Here's the, here's the thing about Barnabas. Barnabas had a salvation experience that when he saw Jesus and when he heard Jesus say who he was and saw the demonstrations and the miracle of his death, burial, and resurrection, Barnabas could not turn to the religion that he was worshiping. He had to turn to Jesus and had a salvation experience and it changed his life forever. No longer did he work in the temple. Now he's taken what he's learned and he's working for Jesus. One, one of the jobs that Barnabas had in Jerusalem was he was, had to be over the city of refuge. Which was if you were in trouble in another section of town, you could come to the city of refuge and Barnabas would take care of you and make sure nobody would, would assault you or even kill you. So here is a man that absolutely was in love with Jesus Christ clearly understood what serving was all about, loving God, loving others, and serving the world. And when he got saved, they turned and said, We're, you're not Joseph, you're Barnabas. You are, if you would, the son of encouragement. And Barnabas did what Barnabas, what, a, what an encouraging person is going to do. He said, I got an extra piece of property. God's moving in the church in a mighty way. God has told me, to sell that piece of property and give 100% of the proceeds to the church. Now, this isn't his tithe. This is his offering. 
He's going to give 100% to the church because that's what God wants him to do. So he did just exactly what God wanted him to do. And then there's a conjunction in chapter 5, verse 1. You see that conjunction? It says, but. I would underline that because it means there's a shift. Something different is about to happen. And that shift that's about to happen is going to describe a husband and wife team by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias comes on the scene with his wife Sapphira and they said, we see what, we see what happened there with, with Barnabas. They got a lot of attention. We got a piece of property too, Ananias says to Sapphira. Sapphira says, well, we sure do. Why don't we see what we can get for that? They say, okay. They put that thing on the market. And next thing you know, they got a deal they can't refuse. They pull the trigger. They sell that piece of property. And they say, okay, let's take it to church. The only problem is this. God told them to give it all. They said they were going to be just like Barnabas. God told Barnabas to give it all. But the Bible tells us that they, instead of giving it all, look at verse number 2 of chapter 5. The Bible says that they sold this possession, and verse 2, he kept back part of the proceeds. God told him to give it all, but he kept back part of it. He said, they'll never know. Look, we had that thing listed for $20,000. We sold that piece of property for $30,000. Ain't nobody going to know. Let's just tell them we got it for full price. And then we made $10,000. And so the Bible says that they took that money and they brought it in and they laid it at the apostles' feet. Now let me tell you about offering giving. I'm glad we don't do that this today. Uh, but in, in Old Testament, or excuse me, New Testament time, uh, when they would take up the offering, they'd have this, uh, this metal uh, bowl, if you would, and people would put their change in there, and you could hear it, clang, 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 and it would just make a bunch of noise. Can you imagine when Barnabas came and dumped it all in there? I mean, I mean the man holding it. So can I get some help holding this, holding this up here? And so here comes Ananias and Sapphira. They come in, and they put their money in. And Peter immediately knows, by the Holy Spirit's prompting in his heart and discernment, they did not do what they said they were going to do. And we have here in the text the questions that come from Peter. Peter said in verse number 3, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it was remained in your possession, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? Then look at this next part. He says, why have you convinced these things in your heart? You know what that tells me? It tells me that Ananias and Sapphira were saved. They wrestled with the decision that they were going to make. You see, listen to me, child of God. The devil wants to get involved in your life in such a capacity to tell you that you're nothing, that you're a nobody, God's not going to know, God's not going to care. God does know. God does care. You are a somebody. Don't you listen to the lies of the devil. If God tells you to do that, you do exactly what God tells you to do. Look at what he goes on to say. The Bible says this in the latter part of the verse. In verse 4, he says, You have not lied to men, but you've lied to God. And then the scripture tells us that Ananias, when he heard these words, can you imagine the last words that you hear on this earth? 
You lied to God. And you die. That's what happened to Ananias. The Bible says, and rightly so, I mean, great fear came upon all those that heard these things. My goodness, did you hear what happened to Ananias? He gave his offering and died. Well, you know why he died? No, why? Because God told him to give the whole thing and they only gave a part of it. Now, look at what the Bible says. The Bible says three hours later, Sapphira comes in, his wife. What do you think she's doing those three hours? I think she's probably down there at OTJ Maxx in Jerusalem, probably shopping. <laughs> I think I'm going to get me a new dress. I think I'm going to get me a new, uh, a new sh- some new shoes. I may go stop by the nail salon and get my nails done. I might buy me a brand new Cadillac Camel on the way home. We find here in the text that for three hours she's missing. She finally comes back to the church and she comes in. And first thing Peter says, says, tell me something. Did you really sell that land at the price you said you are going to sell it at? And then the lady says, yeah, we sold it for that. And Peter says in verse number 9, how is it that you agreed together to test the spirit? Of the Lord. Now let me stop right there and say something parenthetically. The one area that God wants us to test us in is in giving, not in keeping. Malachi chapter 3, the Bible says, test and see about your giving. See if the Lord will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you such that you cannot receive. The Bible says, test him in this thing. But that test is in giving, not in receiving. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, they failed the test. God wanted them to give. But Ananias and Sapphira kept back a portion and didn't give what God told them to do. God wants you to be fully obedient, 100%. Not do it on your terms, but do it on his terms. Well, we know what happened. Can you imagine having to stand before the the preacher and Peter saying this? Peter saying The feet of the men that just buried your husband are at the door, and now they're going to come take you away. And the Bible says, and immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the same young men that buried the husband came and got her and buried her right beside her husband. And then in verse number 11, you see this. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard all these things. There are five lessons in this story that we can learn from Ananias and Sapphira. I wish I could say that these five uh, lessons are original, but I'm like Thomas Jefferson and am not giving to you from a position of originality. Studying uh, many different things, I have found that uh, many different areas in regards to the Word of God and many different individuals, I have found these five to be the most true in relationship to the text. Let me give them to you this morning if I could. Number one, here's the first one. In the church, there are two kinds of people. And it is nearly impossible to distinguish them from the outside. When you look at Ananias and Sapphira, they look just like Barnabas. There is no different by the outside. They come to church every day, or every day the the doors are open. They're there at every event. They're ready to help. They're ready to serve. They're ready to move. They're ready to go. They're ready to love God. They're ready to love others. They're ready to serve the world. They look just like Barnabas. But there's a problem. And the problem is in their heart. 
The Bible says over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, but, it, but, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. Did you hear that verse? Paul, in writing to the book of this, writing to the church at Thessalonica, says that we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the greatest news that's ever been released on the planet Earth, and that is the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're the only religion, the only religion that serves a living Savior. Krishna, still in the grave. Muhammad, still in the grave. Buddha, still in the grave. Hinduism, all those gods, every one of them, they still don't show up. But Jesus shows up every day. He's alive. He's well. And brothers and sisters, when we come to church, we are entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, have been approved by God to take that glorious message and go around and share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. Man, I got so excited. After, after Sammy's funeral, David and I, it was a monsoon. Good grief. Man, it was water everywhere. After it was all over, uh, uh, David and I were coming back to the church after the graveside, and I got a text message. And it says, is this Pastor Shane? Now, uh, I want to go ahead and say this. I, I get a lot of text messages like that. Sometimes I've got your name in my phone. Sometimes I, I don't. Uh, and so I, I need to know who I'm talking to because there's nothing more embarrassing than talking to somebody you don't know who you're talking to. So I just sent back, uh, yes, it is. Who is this smiley face? That smiley face is my way of saying, I don't know who you are. Please help a preacher out. <laughs> the individual came back and shared who he was and just simply said this. I've been lost for a long time. I'm ready to turn my life over to God. Can we sit down and talk? I'm going to be honest with you. I wanted to go right then. I, told, I turned to David and I said, you ready, you ready to go see someone come to know Jesus Christ as Savior? He said, glory to God, where we got to go? And then I kept reading the text message and it said they were at work and didn't get off and, and wanted to come in tomorrow. So we prayed and I said, yes, please come, come by on Tuesday morning. And uh, this dear, 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 dear person under conviction came on Tuesday morning. When they came on Tuesday morning, testified of the convicting power of the Holy Spirit of God. And right there in my office, gave their heart and life to Jesus Christ. To God be the glory. And not only that, that individual's here today with his family, his precious daughter, his precious wife. And I praise God for salvation. I want to say, George Anderson, welcome to the family of God. That happened in Ananias and Sapphira's life. They got saved. That happened in Barnabas' life. He got saved. And so when you look on the outside, we've been entrusted with the gospel, and we speak the things of the gospel, but here's the problem. How about your heart? Ananias and Sapphira had a problem with their heart. Brothers and sisters, I ask us to search our heart today because that's what God examines. God examines the heart. Has there ever been a time in your life when you lied to God? Could I ask you this morning, examine your heart. 
Number two, here's the second lesson we learn. We cannot hide from God. We cannot hide from God. We might be able to hide pornography from our wife. We may be able to, to hide liquor from our parents. We may be able to hide the way that, 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 that the lifestyle that we're living from, from reality. We may be able to hide that from the people we love. But I'm going to tell you why. Listen to me. You're not hiding it from God. He sees it. As a matter of fact, listen to what the Bible says. The Bible says, says this in Hebrews uh, chapter, chapter number 4, verse number 13. The Bible says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we have to do. Dear brothers and sisters, can I tell you how George Anderson come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? He looked at his heart and realized he didn't look like Jesus. And under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit of God, through a precious wife that's been living it in front of him, week in and week out and week in and week out and week in and week out, even in the midst of the coronavirus, he said, I can't take it anymore. I need Jesus. You can't hide from God. He sees it. There's no locked doors or hidden closets with the Holy Spirit. You may try to hide some things from your spouse, but you're not hiding it from God. Let me ask you this. What are you trying to hide from God? It'll eventually come to the surface. I saw an article. I didn't read it, but I saw an article where they found somebody's, somebody's beer stash been hiding it for 30 years. I should have read it. I wish I'd have read it. I'd known a little bit more about it. But there was, a, there, there, had, there was a time when this guy bought some liquor, David, and he hid it so he could go back and drink it. And I don't know if the next day he died or what, but it was lost for 30 years. But finally, somebody looking come across it, and there it was, his stash. All those years, it eventually will come out. But let me just say this. You can't hide from God. The Bible says, again, in Hebrews 4.13, that there is no creature hidden from his sight. There is no creature hidden. Could I just say this? He knows what the birds do and think. He knows what your dog thinks. He knows what your cat thinks. Well, them cats are from the devil. Well, that's something to be argued with. But he knows what they're thinking. Every time I look at Frank, my cat, uh, Frank, I, I don't think there's anything between his ears, bless his heart. But the bottom line is God knows what's between his ears. He knows it all. And he knows what's between your ears. Oh, David, this morning, David was so excited to come to church. David, could you, come here just a minute. Come here. I want you to do something for me. Come, come here. Can I get this microphone right here? Look, I, I'm not, which one are you getting, preacher? P3. PT3. P3. PT3. All right, we're good. I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm putting him on the spot. Look at him. He's nervous. I am. This morning you came in. Yes, sir. You hadn't been to church in four weeks. No, sir. No, sir. That upset you. Why? Tell, tell, tell me why. I miss the family of God. I miss worshiping with the family of God. I need to be in the house of God worshiping God. Look, he, he, he was four weeks. Can you imagine? He'd been gone four weeks. 
He said, man, I need to sit somewhere where there's chain. I said, bless God, we ain't chained you. We're going to turn you loose. You can't hide from God. No, sir. He wanted you here. Yeah, and I wanted to be here. And you wanted to be here. Yes, sir, absolutely. Right, I'm not going to embarrass you anymore. Thank you. I'm just thankful to God. <laughs> you can't hide from God. He knows your heart. Here's one thing I know about David. I know he wanted to be in church. He wanted to be here. And I know you want to be here. There's some of you that are watching today on the te- You want to be here. You want to be in this service. But there are some that are just going through the ecclesiastical duties. You're just going through the motions. You're lying to God. You're here physically, but you're not here spiritually. You can't hide from God. Number three. Here's a third one. Watch this. The closer we are to grace, the greater the offense of sin. Now, when you look at that now, Buzzard, look at it very carefully, because I'm not saying one sin's greater than the other. All sin's equal in God's sight. But what I am saying is this. The closer you are to God's grace, the greater the offense is. Because when you get so close to God, when you see Him move in mighty ways, and then you sin and mess up, the Holy Spirit convicts you. And if you don't do business with God, you begin to callous that. And that offense becomes greater and greater and greater until your house of cards falls apart. And you end up in a state of mass confusion. Ananias and Sapphira, saw God do mighty things. Remember what the scripture says? Turn back, if you could, to uh, Acts chapter 4, verse number 31. Look at what the scripture says there. And when they had prayed, Ananias and Sapphira were part of that. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all, see, they're all there. Everybody's there. Is Ananias and Sapphira there? Yeah, they're there. Peter there? Yeah, Peter's there. They're all there. The Bible says all. Anytime you see the word all, all means all. That's all all means. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And watch this. They spoke the word of God with boldness. And you know what? People were getting saved. And then then you've got verse 32. Now, the multitude of those that were believed, Some say in the neighborhood of 20,000 people got the same heart, the same soul, loving God, loving others, serving the world, sharing the gospel. They are close to God. And Ananias was so close to God that when the mere thought of hiding something from God should have pricked their heart, and they should have dismissed that and said, no, that's not, that's not it. But I want you to see something greater here. Say, well, why? This is so harsh. Why did they have to die? Remember, the completed word of God is not done yet. God is trying to teach something very important here. And the lesson that God is trying to teach is this judgment is coming. That's the lesson. 
Judgment is coming. So the closer we are to grace, the greater the offense of sin. I'm telling you, there have been some people, listen to me, Josh, there's some people been coming to church year after year, year I mean, and they've rejected Jesus Christ, they've said no to Jesus, or not today, Jesus, not right now, Jesus, and year has passed, and year has passed, and year has passed. You've been so close to the grace of God. When you die, you're going to split hell wide open because you've rejected that peace. You've rejected that joy. You've rejected that grace. Number two, let me watch this. Ananias and Sapphira had seen the activity of the Holy Spirit. So much so that it should have increased their sensitivity to sin. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, it's so vitally important that we understand that as born-again children of God, we're going to sin sometimes. But what we do with that sin is vitally important. Let me show you a verse. Take your Bibles and, and, and let's turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I want to show you a verse, and then I want to make sure we get it in its context. It's vitally important. 1 John chapter number 3, verse number 9. Look at what the Bible says here. 1 John chapter 3, verse number 9. The Bible says, whosoever has been born of God, look at, uh uh-oh, wait a minute, does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. Now, wait just a minute. What in the world do you do with that? Because if I ask this question, who in here has, since you've been saved, you've never sinned? I would hope that no hand would go up because we all mess up. So what in the world does John mean here? You've got to make sure that you keep this text in its context because if you don't keep it in its context, you've got a whole different religion of perfectism here and you cannot be a perfect person. You're not perfect once you get saved. So how do you know that? I asked your spouse. Look at what the scripture says here. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. That word does not sin is vitally important uh, because it carries the idea uh, in the Greek that means is in regards to the ability to habitually, repeatedly sin and not be under conviction. That's the meaning of that word right there. Does not sin. He's talking about in the, in the Greek, you see it very plainly. It's a present tense imperative. That means something that is recurring over and over and over and over and over again. So for a born-again child of God who knows, watch this, who knows that alcohol is not wise, and they have come out of alcoholism, and they know that it's something that destroys their life, and the Holy Spirit of God convicts them of that, and they push off that conviction... And they habitually, day after day after day after day after time after time after time, continue in that sin. Then there was just a proclamation of who Jesus is and not a possession. You see, Jesus Christ comes to possess and live inside of the person through the Holy Spirit of God. And it's something greater than just uh, your conscience. Your conscience goads you to look to the Holy Spirit of God who tells you it is wrong. 
And so in growing up in our faith, it's so vitally important that, to know that we as born-again children of God are not perfect people, but we cannot habitually sin and get away with it. Why? He says right there, because. You see the word for? That is the Greek word because. Because his, it should be capitalized H, that is God's seed. What is that? The Holy Spirit remains in him. And he cannot sin again. That's a present tense imperative verb that carries the idea of habitual. You can't habitually sin and say, I'm okay, I'm under God's grace. That's what's called trampling over the grace of God. John goes on to say in this same, in this same text as we go through the book of 1 John that he says there is a sickness unto death. He says, you can sin and you can get sick. You can sin and die. He's, telling, he's saying, look, sin happens even in the life of a believer. But watch this. 1 John chapter 1. Look at what the Bible says. Tur turn over to 1 John chapter 1, verse number 9. He puts this at the very beginning because he wants us to clearly understand that we're going to mess up. Look at what he says in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he, being God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. In the text by which we are looking at today, back over in the book of Acts, the problem was not that God lied, but in an essence of fire a lie. So in regards to you and I, the closer you are to grace, the greater the offense of sin. Number four, got to hurry, I'm almost done. Here's the fourth lesson. Fear is a part of worship. Fear is a part of worship. Did you see what happened in chapter 5, verse 5 and verse 11? T two times it says this. So great fear came upon those who heard these things. Again in verse 11. So great fear came upon the church and upon those who heard these things. Uh, this word fear is very fascinating. Uh, I love the way Adrian Rogers describes it. Adrian Rogers says that this kind of fear is not that God would put his hand on you to hurt you, not that kind of fear, but God that would remove his hand and not use you. Not saying that he would take your salvation away. You can't take your salvation away. But here's the thing. But God would remove his hand from you and not use you anymore. That your ministry would become null, void, empty, meaningless. This is why the songwriter John Newton... When he wrote Amazing Grace, he included this line. Tis grace that taught my heart to fear. What teaches our heart to fear? The grace of God. Think about it. Think about it just for a minute. Fear is a part of worshiping God. I worship God today because of his grace. I deserve to die and go to hell. But because he loved me, he sent his son to die on a cross. And his son went into a grave, and on the third day, he came out of the grave alive, victorious over death, hell, and the grave, that I might have eternal life. And so when I come on Sunday mornings to worship him, I'm worshiping him in great reverence, great fear, because I don't want God to take his hand off of my life. I want God's hand on my ministry, and I want God's hand on your life and your ministry. Fear is a part of worship. I love what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Listen to what the scripture says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Dear brothers and sisters, do you fear God? Do you reverence God? You say, well, how do I know if I don't fear God? Then let me ask you this. How do you treat God the Father? I heard some people refer to him as the man upstairs. He ain't the man upstairs. He's a holy, righteous God. I've heard some people call him the big guy. He's bigger than you think. The fear of the Lord. Do you fear God? I can remember when I first got saved. I really wanted to do right. I really did. I, I, I took the abstinence challenge, every challenge they presented, I, I took it all. I took all those challenges. And then I got to thinking. And I made this commitment to stay pure until I'm, until I'm married. I was 14 at the time. I tried to work out a deal with God. I said, God, look, I'm going to do this, but he, here's the thing. I, would you please wait before you come? I, I know the rapture's happened, but I, I really, I'm going to commit to this purity thing, but I really want, will you, will you just wait till I'm married before you come back? Now, that's not the reason why the Lord hadn't come back. Hold it together, preacher. I know it, brother. I know I'm close. I know. I'm not going to jump off. Why are you hanging there with me? It was the fear of the Lord that prompted me to continue that commitment. You see what I'm saying? It was the fear of the Lord that prompted me to continue. Not that he would hold back his rapture because I, I just want to be married. And have a relationship with my wife. No, that, no, It's because I feared the Lord that I did not do that. You see, when I was taught, David, I was taught in the Bible. That passage over there in, in, in Hebrews chapter 13 where it says, chapter 13 verse 2, marriage is honorable in all and the marriage bed is undefiled. I, I, I was taught that the Bible's true. And if the Bible's true and the Bible says the marriage bed is undefiled, then that means if you're not married and you're living together, you're not fearing God, you're living in sin. Now, I know that's not good. I know that's not popular preaching today, but it's the truth. And if you're going to be right with God, if you're truly going to fear God, when you read the Word of God, it's going to do something in the heart. It's not going to want you. Listen, the Word of God's not going to contradict itself. The Word of God's not going to say the marriage bed is undefiled and uh, uh, the marriage bed, is, but it's okay for you to live together and sleep together. That's fine. You're Christians. That don't matter. You think God's going to go against His Word? The Bible calls that a whoremonger. And that there's judgment coming because of that. You see, we, we fail to realize the judgment of God is real. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning. of. I'm going to be honest with you. If I was living with somebody and I wasn't married and I was having sex with them, and I'm telling you what, I feared God, I'd call the preacher today. And I'd say, when can I come in and get married? And by the way, God's done that before. He's done it. I've been up here on, on a Sunday Folks getting saved, getting right with God, and then wanting to get married. And I'm going to be honest with you. It's better to be married and pay a little bit more in taxes than to stay unmarried and be under the judgment of God. Hey. Number five. I, I'm done. I'm, I'm out of time. My kids are getting squirmy. All right, here you are. Sin is a deadly serious matter to God. That's the fifth one. It it's a de deadly serious matter to God. It's deadly serious. If we're honest... We look at this passage of scripture and it's offensive to us. Uh, 
but it merely, it merely reveals the ignorance that we have of God's holiness. We shouldn't ask the question, why did they die? Instead, we should be asking the question, why am I still alive? You think about that. John chapter 3, verse 16, I'm, I'm calling it now. John 3, 16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 says this, How shall we escape, talking about the judgment of God, if we neglect such a great salvation? You want to be judged by God? Neglect the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everybody wants to know, what's the unpardonable sin? What's the unpardonable sin? Is it suicide? No, that's not the unpardonable sin. What, what's the unpardonable sin, preacher? Can you tell me? Uh, yeah, I can tell you what the unpardonable sin is. Not getting saved. Dying in your sin. Burning in everlasting hell. You see, God's not going. God doesn't want to send you to hell. You send yourself to hell. You Listen to me out there, please. If you, I'm not trying to be mean or ugly or harsh. I'm just trying to give you the truth of the Word of God. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Sin is so serious to God that he gave his only, his one and only son so that you can have eternal life. He sacrificed his son by taking his, the sins that you have and placing them upon, upon Jesus. And he died in your place. Let me ask you this question. I began this message by saying there are two types of people in the church today. There are those that are the Barnabases. And then there are those that are like Ananias and Sapphira. There are those that are doing exactly what God's told them to do. And then there are those that God's told them to do something. And they hadn't done it at all. Which one? Are you? I want to close with this closing illustration. I don't do it to embarrass anyone. In fact, I will not say any names. But we've got a dear, sweet family in this church. And this sweet family in this church came to me several, well, earlier this year. It's been over a one-year period. And here's what they said. They said, uh, Pastor, God's put it on our heart to give $100,000 to the gym out there. We know, we know the children need it. We know the youth need it. God's put that on our heart. That's what we want to do. And so every so often throughout the course of the year, they'd come a check. $20,000. $30,000. $20,000. I mean, it just slowly would come in. This past week, after Sammy passed away, I had a note sitting in my desk when I came in on, my, on Tuesday morning. I opened up that note, and in the note were these words. It just said something like this. I'm not going to give you it exactly, but it said this. Pastor, remember I said several earlier this year that God put it on our heart to give $100,000 to the gym. Here's the final $20,000 on top of our regular giving. 
as God has blessed us. And we want to stay faithful to him. Now, the reason why I tell you this story, because listen, listen to me very carefully. You've been so faithful to God in your giving. So faithful. You know what the offering was last week? You know, hold on to your seat. Last week's offering was $75,000. Now, listen to me. Listen to me. That would never happen unless you're faithful to God. In the midst of a pandemic, you've been faithful to God. I want to challenge you today. Stay faithful to God. Our debt, if you'll notice that came on the screen just before service started, we're at $480,000. It's just last week, but we were just under five hundred. dollars now we're at $480,000. God is using you in a mighty, mighty way. But you know what's even greater than that? This is not close. What's greater than all that is stories like George Anderson who gave his heart to Jesus. What's even better than that is the story of those six people at Sammy House's funeral that gave their life to Jesus Christ. I want to praise God because Maisel Baptist Church, to the best of its ability, has used the grace of God to fear the Lord, to say we believe what the pastor says and what he's preaching is from the book. And we want to get involved in that. Love God, love others, serve the world. I want to challenge you, church, and I believe this is why the Lord opened it up for me to preach this message today. Because some may be here today, whether you're watching by way of video, or live on, online, live stream, or you're here, or you're one of the services, or you're listening on the radio today on 95.1. God has spoken to you and told you what you ought to do and you hadn't done it yet. And you're deeply convicted by that. After the first service, I was standing right here in the, in the pastor's reception room. People were coming in saying hi. One dear precious saint came in, tears streaming down their face and they just simply said this. I'm on my way home. I have lied to my husband. And I want to get things right. Will you pray for me? I said, yes. I had prayer, and off they went. That's taking the word of God and appropriating it and doing something about it. If you're lost today, you can do that. Would you bow our heads in prayer? I I'm out of time. I'm, 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 I'm done. If you're here today and you're listening by way of radio, you're watching over the Internet. Maybe you need to get saved. God told you you need to be saved. That's what he said to you. You need to give your heart. You need to give your heart to Jesus. Right where you're at, would you say something like this to the Lord? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Savior. And this morning I ask you to save my soul. I repent of my sins. And I trust you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to look right up this way. We're going to sing a song. We're going to sing that song, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. And here's what I want to ask you to do. Could we all just stand? I, I really like this. This is our response to Jesus. Now, if you want to come to the altar, the altars are open. But here's what we want to do. The altars are open if you want to come pray. I'm going to be in the, uh, 
I'm going to be in the pastor's reception room now. I'd love to meet you after you're done. If you're our guest, I'd love to say hello to you. Maybe you'd like to just come speak to me. I'll have my mask on. I'll be in there. love to talk to you. David's going to be in room 256. Maybe you'd just like to speak to a minister, talk about some challenges in your life. He'll be in there wanting to help you. We've tried to provide many, many opportunities to help you get closer to God. That's, that's my, I want you to be close to God. So could we sing this as our response to the Lord? If you need to come, the altars are open. And then we're going to dismiss after this. Let's sing together. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus Just to take Him at His word Just to rest upon His promise Just to pray that we'd be able to trust you more today than we did yesterday and in days to come. May you continue to meet our needs. May you continue, Lord, to use us as a testimony of your sweet grace and mercy. Help us to love this community, love you, love the world, and serve the world. We love you. We praise you. We ask your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Miss Terry, just a minute, church, for each other. We'll make sure the altars have enough time. So. Terry, just for a moment. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I'm going to remind you that our small group Bible studies are going to be starting September the 13th. And so when you exit today, I'm going to ask you to turn right. There's a little video I want you to watch concerning that. And uh, please remember that we're trying to open everything up on September the 13th. Some of you say, well, what about Sunday night service? I need Sunday evenings. Okay, church, please hear my heart on this. I need Sunday evenings for the small group Bible studies at this time. There was a bunch, there were several of them that met on Sunday night. I need to provide that opportunity for them as we continue to love God, love others, and serve the world. And so you keep being patient with me on that. I greatly appreciate it. I've got some wonderful things lined up in the future when we take some breaks, some concerts, and some preaching opportunities on Sunday nights. Those, those things are going to come, but that is... Uh, the last thing on the list, let's get the church uh, moving in the right direction, continue to move in the right direction, and we're going to continue to praise the Lord. So you help me out with that, and you pray for me. I greatly appreciate it. Let me call your attention to this video. church family, me and Pastor David are right outside the sanctuary at our small group kiosk. 
If you're interested in joining one of our in-home small groups, please come outside and sign up for them. We want to help you. You can also sign up on our website, but we want to help you give you some information, give you a flyer, just talk to you a little bit more about them. They are starting uh, the week of September the 13th. They'll meet all during the week in people's homes, and we want to get you set up. Also, if you're interested in on-campus groups, we have those as well. They'll be starting back up at 9.30 on September the 13th for you. If you're not sure exactly what class you would like to be involved in, please stop by, sign up. I'll get back in touch with you, and we'll get you settled in into a wonderful group here on campus. God bless you. Chris and I love you. We look forward to seeing you in groups on September the 13th. Thank you so very much for tuning in to our broadcast today. It is the purpose of Maysville Baptist Church to love God, love others, and serve the world. One of the ways that we serve the world is broadcasting this program all over the world through the internet. I want to tell you what a joy it is to have you tune in today. Maybe at the end of the service you prayed and received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. Several years ago, I wrote a book entitled My First Week. I would love to send you a copy of this book to help you on your brand new journey as being a born-again Christian. If you'll just reach out to me by our website, send me an email, uh, or maybe even call the church, I'd be glad to drop this in the mail and send it to you. May the Lord bless you for tuning in. I hope to see you next week, and thank you for being with us at Maysville.